Father, you're good. We are so profoundly thankful because if you weren't, we'd be in trouble. Thank you for your presence, but thank you for a place to gather. Thank you for people to gather with who are trying to connect with you. Lord, we make ourselves available to you this morning. Each of us brings concerns, and we lift those to you. And burdens, and we place those at your feet. And Lord, we bring mess. We have messed up our relationships and we have hurt others and we've been hurt by others. We bring that as well. We ask for your help and for your healing and for hope. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. yes, they did. You may be seated. I want you to get in circles of four, five, or six. You should be with people who are relatively in your kind of stage of life. You may be sitting with your parents, that's great too, or you may be sitting with friends, that's awesome. But I want you to circle, literally, circle your chairs up, groups of four, five, or six. No more than six, no less than four. Get them all in circles if you can. Group up, go. You're with people who are at a similar stage in life. So name one or two or three highs. So like joys, accomplishments, growth areas, good things about the stage of life that you're in right now. I'll give you 15 seconds to think. And then I want you to go around the circle and name a couple of highs or three highs for the stage of life that you're in right now. All right, go. Okay, 30 seconds. All right, let's wrap it up. Let me have your attention. Okay, secondly, I know for some of you this is, for those of you who are more introverted, this is difficult, so just let the outspoken person in your group talk more. Secondly, name one or two lows, challenges, obstacles, difficulties that are typical for the stage of life that you're in for people or generally for people in your stage of life, what are the challenges? What are the difficulties? What are the obstacles? Okay, go. Okay, wrap it up. All right. Finally, one more. For... People who are in the stage of life that you're in, who or what exercises the most, or not even the most, who or what exercises significant influence? In the stage of life that you're in, who or what exercises significant influence? Okay, go.
Okay, 30 seconds. All right, let's wrap up those discussions. And I'm going to ask you with as little chaos as we can accomplish, move your chairs back to as close as where they originally were as you can. Let me have your attention. I'm going to give you one for you to think about personally. We'll all be glad that we didn't share this in our circles. I'm going to guess that if you're over the age of 30, maybe over the age of 35, you'll instantly think of something. If you're between the age of 20 and 30, you'll probably think of something. For our teenagers, they may or may not be able to think of anything. I want to give you 15 seconds with this one. What is the mess you spend considerable energy keeping from others? Now, I want you to share that with one another. (laughs) (laughs) They all laugh nervously. (laughs) Part of what we're going to be talking about this morning is that we're all a mess. We all have mess. We're the third week this week into a series of messages we're calling, What's Your Story? And part of our story is that we mess. We have stuff that we bring to ourselves, (laughs) that we bring to relationships with others. I want to introduce you to Paul and Leanne Howdershell. And I have known Paul and Leanne long enough to know that Paul and Leanne are a mess. But they're all, somebody started to applaud. Yes, they're a mess. But they're also awesome. And working through their mess and helping others work through theirs. Paul, what did mess look like in your life? First, I just want to thank you, Ed. Every time, you know, you want to talk about mess, our phone rings. And, you know, one of, one of us gets the opportunity to be up here. I'd like to expand my testimony someday. I, for those of you who don't know me. I'm a recovering alcoholic, and um, I'm a native of Northern Virginia. grew up in this area, and and I just want to say as an aside, um, I've come to actually believe that has been a tremendous privilege. It's it's just been fortunate to be part of of this area, witness things that go on here. You know, I got to be, you know, you get the front row of a lot of stuff that goes on. So, uh, you know, rather than referring it to Sodom and Gomorrah on the Potomac, I I mean, there's an awful lot of blessings I received in my life from being here. Unfortunately, a good worldview and a good, stable personal relationship with others and God wasn't part of that. Part of my family history and part of my family system is I really grew up without any real connection with knowing that I had emotions, what they were, and what to do with them uh, when I experienced them. As I often say in my testimony, I didn't really have words to put on feelings I didn't understand or even recognize I had. So for me, the result of that was, as soon as I discovered alcohol, that made all of that discomfort in my life fall away in my mind. I instantly felt like I was comfortable. The stuff that bothered me didn't seem to bother me when I was drinking, and it was like the Band-Aid that cured everything. And that's how I began to approach life, you know, from my late teens into my 30s. So what would you do with emotion, Paul? Just stuff it and cover it? I would stuff it, I would cover it, I would hold it for the weekend and just massage it with a lot of alcohol. And I I found I could hold on, you know, through high school and through most of college, I could hold on during the week to the weekend. 
But you know, later years in college, that turned into almost a nightly thing and, and into my early adulthood. It, uh, it was the way I coped and the way I got through life. And I'm the introvert, so it didn't express itself in bars and extra, in, in a lot of outward behavior. It would be I would go home, and I, and I would just make those feelings go away by drinking. Leanne, how did you interact with this, and how did this impact you, and what did you do with this? I was raised in a family that was all about emotion. It was, you know, yelled and talked about, but we never actually talked about the thing. We talked and yelled around that thing. So we were a pretty good match in that regard, <laughs> I guess if you want to call it that. And I was raised to take care of things and do the right things. So for us, I feel like I was raised to be the wife or partner of an alcoholic hmm. or of a dysfunction because I would take care of everything and he would let me. And, but it didn't work out well relationally. You know, I've often told young couples, when Diane and I are talking to young couples before they get married, we marry one another. Teenagers, if you miss everything else, don't miss this. This is a weird concept, but you'll get there. We marry one another for all of these reasons, this complex of reasons. You know, we think she's hot. We listen to the same music, love that sense of humor. Oh, I also went to the Grand Canyon when I was 13. Whatever it is, we marry for this complex of reasons, and those are good reasons. We also marry for reasons that are more hidden, that we usually don't discover until we're well into it. We kind of fit together like gears and grooves in a way that uh, can become unhealthy if we let it. The shy one will often marry the really loud one and they work out an agreement with one another so that I agree that I don't have to say anything and you will always cover me. But those agreements always come with backsides to them and things that we are more or less aware of. So uh, Leanne mess begins to emerge in your relationship. Paul, mess begins to come forward. How does it come forward? Um, well, for, for those who don't know, you know, alcoholism is a progressive disease. So you, you do more, and you do more, and you do more. And as you do more, parts of yourself become stripped away, and you're less able to deal with life. So it's, it's just a vicious cycle. So what was happening to me through a whole course of Events in my life, without going into the details, it was harder and harder and harder for me to function, and I would try to drink more and more and more. I was trying to hide it from Leanne at the same time, and you know, there's numerous stories about this, which I won't go into, but it, it became in increasingly difficult to do that, and one of the... You were, you were working full-time yeah. and hiding this mostly from Leanne, Yes. and Leanne, you're doing your thing and, and keeping everything clean and together and orderly. I'm, I'm okay. working full-time and going to school at night. I'm doing everything you do as part of our American system. Mm -hmm. But it, was in, it became increasingly hard to do. So it required more, you know, more numbing on my behalf. One of the damages of all of this, and, and you know, it's all progressive. You don't, it's, like being, you know, it's like putting a frog in the thing and raising the temperature. You don't know. You don't realize how bad it's getting. But our marriage was slowly being destroyed. And my part of it was you know, my disease, my misfunction, you know, the garbage I brought to it, and, and we were just, we were pulling apart. And, and part of me knew that, but I didn't know what to do about it. 
when we were talking about this, you said that you came to Leanne and told her, you realized, I've got a problem. Mm-hmm. You come to Leanne and tell her, mm-hmm. you've got a problem. Mm-hmm. But what, you remember what you mm-hmm. said about that declaration, to me, was startling. Do you, do you remember what you said? Okay, if, if, drag it out if I'm not going there. <laughs> <laughs> for me, God intervened in, in my testimony. I mean, just one night, God intervened, and for some reason... Not that anything was any better that night. It was pretty much the norm for our, our family at that point. Uh, you know, we, we probably had the usual argument. Leanne had probably, you know, I can't even remember all the details at this point, but I said the first honest thing I'd said to her, and I said, I that think I've had a problem. Yeah. So you said, you told me this was the first truly honest thing you had ever said to her. Yeah. Not knowingly. You know, you know mm-hmm. I, I would never have said I was, you know, necessarily lying to my wife up until that, po- up until that point. But that was so much from my heart and so much from the core of who I was at that point in time that, it, I mean, it was absolute truth. So how did it get better, Paul? What happened? Honestly, it didn't get better right away. Uh, it got worse. That's but I, really good news. Yeah, it's it, real encouraging. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't want to lose my marriage, and I didn't want to lose who I was. And somehow God was impressing himself on me how important that was. And I, I couldn't vocalize that then. I just knew... I had to do whatever it took, and I no longer cared whatever it took. And for you, Leanne? Well, during this whole time, I was on my own self-salvation project because I wanted to control everything. I wanted to fix everything. I knew something was wrong, even though I didn't know necessarily it was the alcohol. So the worse things got, the more I tried to control it and maintain you know, equilibrium And I know a a lot of times, I think we did the normal pattern, like Paul's the one, when he admitted it, Paul's the one with all the problems. I'm the perfect one. (laughs) Those of you that know me don't laugh so hard. (laughs) This is what you're thinking. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh Yeah, and so we go in to get some help, and the the, uh, counselor, we went in for um, treatment. The counselor there said, well, I'm glad you're here speaking to me because it's a family problem. And my, and my thought was, yes, it sure is. He's ruined our family. <laughs> <laughs> so having pride and thinking that I'm the one in charge leaves me without my own personhood, basically. I don't know who I am either because mm. mm. I'm too busy trying to fix it for all of you guys and for Paul. So over the years, you guys have been able to not only restore and renew, but you've been able to offer that to others. You've gotten involved with a ministry that we've had at Gateway and we'll have again. Tell us real quickly about that ministry. Do an advertisement for it, if you would, one of you. Okay, okay. I'll, I'll start. Real briefly, God put us in, in a set of circumstances where we were exposed to a ministry called Celebrate Recovery. And what it does is it takes the whole recovery paradigm that a lot of you are used, you know, many of you may be used to through AA, NA, all the various A's, and it, which are spiritually based, but what it does is it explicitly points to Christ as our higher power. And what I had discovered through my own recovery was there was more going on than just my alcoholism. There were things repeatedly coming up in my life that I needed to recognize, I needed to spend some time wrestling with, turning over to God and receiving healing from. And what Leanne and I found out and have truly kind of believe is that while traditional recovery is good and 
we, th we think Celebrate Recovery, what's the word I'm trying to think of? It, it accelerates it to just a bigger, more holistic thing. We get to encounter God face to face, and he says, I love you. This is who I made you to be. There's some things in your life I want you to deal with, and you get that opportunity mm. to do it. Mm. Anything you'd add, Leanne? Yeah, for me, it was doing away with my self-salvation project. I became a Christ follower when I was eight years old, and for me, well, I told Ed yesterday, it forced me to put my money where my mouth was. Do you really trust Christ, or are you your own idol? And so Celebrate Recovery and the 12 Steps, the eight biblical principles, have given me a path to go down where I really was forced to look at my own character defects, is what we call them in recovery, to look at people I needed to forgive and to forgive those, and to really trust God with my life, not just with, you know, okay, God, I'd love to have this new pair of shoes or whatever. So the turning things over to God on a daily basis is something I think about every day. And so when we first got in this process, my dad said to me, I understand why Paul's in recovery, but I don't understand why you are. And I think a lot of people are in that same thing. If your spouse is an addict of any kind or has character defects, it's so easy to blame them because it's an outward thing. But, you know, God talks about wanting our glass, our, you know, he says, your glass is clean on the outside, but filthy on the inside. And that's exactly where mine was. We're going to launch into looking at a biblical story this morning and using that as a, a kind of paradigm for our story. And today we're going to look at Abraham. Abraham was a dude, uh, but he was also a guy that probably needed Celebrate Recovery. So we're going to start by having Paul and Leanne read for us verses 10 through verses 20 of chapter 12 of Genesis. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to look at Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20, and I'm going to have Paul and Leanne read that for us. And let's go old school. Let's stand out of reverence for God's word. It'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Abraham in Egypt. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt to live here for a while because the famine was severe. Okay, you know what? I don't have my glasses. <laughs> okay. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sari, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maid servants and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sari. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. You may be seated. Terry Eagle sent me an article this week that related to our theme. Let me read the opening paragraph of that article if I can. How many times have you listened to someone tell their story and thought, wow, I wish God would move in my life like this? The woman continues, we often nurture a love-hate relationship with story. 
We love the magic on the silver screen, the plot that keeps us reading late into the night, and the honest personal accounts of faith tested by fire. But then the story comes to a close, and we snap back to reality, to our story, which feels more like a rat race than a redemptive drama. And then we hate it, because we don't know how to translate the soul-stirring story into life as we know it, a life that is marked by deadlines and errands and responsibility and stress. How do we unearth the cosmic drama in the daily grind? In other words, she's saying, how do we see God's hand and God's purpose in the midst of our daily stresses and our busyness? Jesus told us that he was offering us abundant life. So how do we live, really live, with meaning and vigor when we seem to spend our time slogging through one to-do list after another? Listen to what the author says next. She says this, Perhaps the answer is the same for us as it is for the creators of our favorite stories. We do it by paying attention. The best stories share common elements, weaving a tale with rich metaphor, mounting tension, character growth, plot momentum, and slowing sweet resolve. Any story you've ever loved is good simply because the storyteller paid attention to these elements and put immense work into drawing them out. There is no question that God is moving in your life. The only question is, have you committed to the work of paying attention. Wow. I think this author is on to something. I want to suggest that we probably need to work on paying attention by paying attention to our problems, to our harmful and hurtful habits and patterns. In a word, we need to pay attention to our mess. After all, we're all a mess. And we don't help ourselves by avoiding it or ignoring it. And after we've recognized our mess, we need to bring our mess to our Savior. So today, let's look at Abraham's story. As I said, Abraham was the man. His story is found in the first book of the Bible in Genesis. I looked Abraham up in a standard biblical encyclopedia this week. There's more written about Abraham in this encyclopedia than there is about any other character except Jesus. He's offered up as an example of what faith looks like by the New Testament. He's the example. We're all supposed to have faith. Abraham was the example. He was a courageous, faithful follower of God. At times, his trust and faith seemed unconditional and unbounded. He's called the father of three religions. But at other times, Abraham was a mess. He had a clever and annoyingly persistent tendency to resort to what I call Plan B living. Let me give you kind of a definition for Plan B living. Plan B living is a determined attempt to secure my happiness and my good completely apart from what God wills or wants. In fact, usually without reference to God at all. Plan B living grows out of my fears and insecurity. It bends to the expectations of those around me. It constantly looks for the easiest, quickest path. And its energy is exhausting in protecting and maintaining itself. In Abraham's case, plan B usually involved lying, manipulation, and acquiescing to some really bad God-defying idea. Here's the thing. We know from our own experience that Abraham's plan B decisions grew out of the mess that he carried deep in his soul. We know this because we know that that's where our plan B decisions come from, from the mess inside of us. And we know that Abraham's plan B decisions infected others around him with a mess that was in him and drug them into it. The same is true for us. We're all a mess. In Genesis 12, the passage that Howder Shells read for us this morning, Abraham first shows us his mess. 
So Abraham has just been called from God, and this is thousands of years ago. Abraham has no Bible to refer to, and Abraham has this profound sense that God speaks to him. He hears it, and he follows that voice. Listen, I want you to leave your family, everything. I'm going to make you into a great nation. Follow me. You're going to end up in a completely different place. And Abraham goes, and he can't catch the nearest train or airplane. This is in a day when people did not leave family and did not travel. Abraham does. Hundreds of miles following God's voice. He moves to this new land, and then he gets to the land, and there's a terrible famine in the land. And Abraham decides, and that's important, Abraham decides, it may have been a very good decision, but Abraham decides to go to Egypt. He doesn't return home to his family. Abraham decides to go to Egypt. Perhaps he's heard there are resources in Egypt that he can be supplied with. But I'm convinced that what happens next is Abraham, because of what little he knows about Egypt, he's decided to go to Egypt. And because of what little he knows about Egypt, Abraham creates in his own mind a false narrative. Those Egyptians, I've heard, I know what they're like. They're going to see you. They're going to think you're beautiful. They're going to kill me. They're going to keep you alive and take you. So here's what we do. We go to Egypt. Here's the plan, Sarah. We go to Egypt. You tell everybody that you're my sister. In fact, this was not a complete lie. We find out later in Genesis that they were kind of a half-brother, half-sister, but also husband and wife. It wasn't a complete lie, or was it? You know, he wasn't certainly telling the most significant truth that she was his wife. So they go to Egypt and they act out of this false narrative without regard for the sanctity of their marriage, without regard for Sarah at all. Now, this may shock some of us that Father Abraham, the father of the faith, would act in such a way, but it should not shock us. Abraham was acting out of his mess, and we do the same thing. Later in chapter 15, God promises to give Abraham a son and to make out of him a great people, a nation that's going to be a blessing to all people. But Abraham's wife Sarah seemed to be unable to have a child. So in chapter 16, after this second epic event with God, right after that in chapter 16, it's recorded for us an incident in which once again, Abraham's penchant for plan B living emerges. This is not on the screen, but I want to read you the first four verses of chapter 16. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. This was not an unknown practice in the day, but it certainly did not make it God-honoring. So she said to Abram, look, the Lord has kept me from having children, so go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her, so she'll have a child, and it will, in effect, become my child. So, <laughs> oh, sure. Okay, so Abram agrees to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah's wife took her Egyptian maidservant to Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to look down on Sarah. Then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. I'm sure Abram is thinking, this was your idea. Verse 6, your servant's in your hands. (laughs) Do whatever you want. Just don't, don't be mad. Do with her whatever you think's best. And then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled. She flees 
from the area, God ends up speaking to Hagar and actually ends up protecting her and her son Ishmael. If you look at the interpersonal dynamics, if we take the interpersonal dynamics of chapter 16, I think you'll recognize some familiar themes. I bet some of you have seen this in some of your marriages. First, we see Hagar with false pride looking down on Sarah. Then we see Sarah with false blame. This is all your fault. And then, interestingly, we see Abraham with a false neutrality and acquiescence. Okay, do whatever you want. Again, we may be tempted to be shocked, but we shouldn't be. Abraham is following a well-worn path, plan B path. Only this time his, his plan would create tension for generations to come. That boy Ishmael would be the father of modern-day Arabs. And we know the relationship between Arabs and Jews today. It's the same as it's been since this day. And still we're not finished. We're rarely creative in our messes. They just repeat themselves over and over again. And in chapter 20, once again, Abraham revisits an old fear and an old false narrative and an old unhealthy plan B solution emerges. So let me read quickly from chapter 20, the beginning of that, if you can even believe this. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur for a while. He stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she's my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, you are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she's my sister? And didn't she also say, he's my brother? I've done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, so I've kept you from sinning against me. This is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he's a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. Once again, Abraham builds a false narrative. Once again, that false narrative grows out of his fear and his insecurity. Once again, Abraham acts out of his false narrative without regard for his marriage and without regard for Sarah. Once again, he covers that narrative with lies and manipulation. And once again, he imposes his mess on Sarah and on the others around him. This is just like us. The Bible puts it like this. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says, all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Of course, this is not the end of the story. Our mess never is because Abraham doesn't sin in a vacuum. We never do. He sinned in community with others. I won't take the time to read this, but if you continue reading the story, in chapter 26, Abraham and Sarah have had a son. His name is Isaac. Listen to this. In chapter 26 now, Isaac has gotten married to a woman named Rebekah. Isaac goes to a, a different land, to the land of, if you can believe it, Gerar. King Abimelech is still in power in the land of Gerar. Isaac goes to the area of King Abimelech, realizes that his wife is beautiful, believes that they will kill him because of the beauty of his wife, and he tells the same man, the same lie that his father told that man before him. Isaac tells Abimelech, oh, she's my sister. Without regard for the sanctity of their marriage, without regard for Rebekah. Like his father before him, 
Isaac creates a false narrative out of his own insecurity. He acts and chooses out of that false narrative, and it becomes a mess that he creates for Abimelech and for his wife and for his family. In chapter 27, Isaac and Rebekah have had two sons. In the ancient Near East, the older son inherited all the land and all the property. This wasn't because the older son was better. This was to keep it all together. It was really a financial incentive and mechanism to keep property in the hands of the family. But the younger son is the favored son of the mother. So what the mother, Rebecca, decides that she'll do is she will follow the family pattern. She will lie and deceive Isaac in his old age and get Isaac through a lie to bless Jacob and give Jacob the land instead of Esau. Like his father before him, Jacob becomes a liar and builds his life on deception. Abraham the deceiver gives birth to generations of deceivers. And social scientists will tell us today that in proportions that are profoundly statistically significant, we do the same thing. We pass our messes on to our children and often to our children's children. Plus, Abraham's plan B decision with Hagar creates animosity that would echo across centuries. It echoes still today. Ishmael is the father of Arabs, as I said, and like their father before them, they take a dim view toward the descendants of Isaac. So, why should we pay attention to our messes? Because they make our lives and the like of lives of those around us difficult. Because they're part of our story because they inform who we are, and because they create generational rifts and problems. That's also why, and if you miss everything else, please don't miss this. That's also why we need a Savior. We're a mess. We need help. None of us gets to be the person who gets it all right. None of us gets to be the husband that never hurts their wife. None of us gets to be the wife that never hurts and disappoints her husband. None of us gets to be the father that doesn't mess up our children. None of us gets to be the mother that doesn't mess up our children. None of us gets to have the story where everything goes exactly according to plan. We're all a mess. We begin by noticing we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why God acts on our behalf. He has to. Did you notice that in the midst of Abraham's mess, and if you go back and read it, I promise I want you to focus on this in chapter 12, chapter 16, and chapter 20. Through all of Abraham's plan B decisions, in spite of the infection that Abraham spreads, the infection that he spreads, God still moves on his behalf, and God still uses him to bless others in the midst of it. In fact, in chapter 12, God intervenes through a series of diseases he inflicts on Pharaoh, and God ends up restoring Sarah to her rightful place. He restores the Abraham-Sarah marriage, and he even materially blesses Abraham. At the end of the story, Pharaoh ends up saying, okay, just leave and take a bunch of camels and stuff with you. In chapter 16, God takes Abraham and Sarah's mistake, and he blesses Ishmael, and he builds a nation out of him. In chapter 20, God again intervenes through dreams, and he restores Sarah to her rightful place. He restores the marriage, and again, he materially blesses Abraham. 
Abraham's story was a part of God's larger story. So God uses Abraham in spite of his mistakes and messes, and sometimes he redeems those mistakes and uses them as well because it glorifies him to do so. We need a Savior. None of us gets to be the person that gets it all right. All of us are a mess. So Christian philosophers and theologians over the years have described this. Some of you have heard this term before. Christian theologians and philosophers have described this as total depravity. If you've heard that term before, I want you to know that that doesn't mean that we're totally bad and we're wicked. What it means is every part of us, every aspect of us, the core of who we are is corrupted. And out of that corrupt core grows glory and beauty and kids and fantastic families and awesome work and productivity and mess and sin, and wrong choices, and plan B goofiness. Because it grows out of who we are, and we need a Savior. Abraham's Savior and ours has has shown up perfectly. We're going to end here. Abraham's Savior and ours has shown up perfectly and completely in the life of the man Jesus Christ. God told Adam from the beginning of time, look, We're going to hang out, you and I. This is going to be awesome. But it's got to be about you and me being connected. And that's going to make everything else flow the way it's supposed to flow. Here's the deal. You depart from that if you sin. We've defined sin before as anything we do to find our meaning, purpose, and our pleasure apart from God. Look, if you sin, you die. But you hang with me, and everything's going to be connection. It's going to be awesome. And you and Eve, you know, naked through the garden, do your thing. Just don't send. No plan B. I don't think he said this because he was being mean. I think God said this because he had established a moral law in the universe. I think the moral law in the universe is as much a part of the universe as the law of gravity. Physicists call the law of gravity a law because no matter how powerful a telescope we create, as far as they can look in the universe, gravity still works. Everywhere, masses attract to one another. So they call it a law because it always works exactly the same. In that same book, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul called this process our mess and what we do. He called that process the law of sin and death. So here's how the universe works. You sin, you act out of mess, you act out of plan B, you die. You don't connect to God You don't spend eternity with him. You don't become who you were meant to be. You die. And all of us have sinned. So God can either ignore and abandon his loved ones, or he could find a way to both love us and to satisfy his own justice. And he did that in Jesus. Jesus died our death. The penalty that we deserved for all of our plan B decisions, Jesus took it. This is why the first followers of Christ made such a big deal out of Jesus. And it's why we do still today here at Gateway. We need a Savior, and we have one in Jesus. So let's end. We're all a mess. None of us gets to be the person who gets it all right. And because we're a mess, we need a Savior. We can't educate ourselves out of it. We can't manipulate ourselves out of it. We can't lie ourselves out of it. We can't cover it. We can't cover it with clever dances. 
We can't cover it with alcohol. We can't cover it with busyness. We're a mess. And we do mess with one another. And some of us are so effective and productive that we're able to do marginal mess for years. We keep our mess at bay, mostly. Every now and then it bubbles up into something colossal and we find some way to cover it up. But we're all a mess and we need a savior. So this morning, we're going to pause for a moment and I want you to just pay attention. Where has your mess bubbled up lately? What are you spending a lot of energy, a lot of energy covering up so that the rest of us don't see and don't know? You perhaps have not even admitted it to yourself. Let's give God just a minute to speak into that. I also want to offer this this morning. If there's anyone here today who has not made a personal connection with God, you've never said yes like Laney did. You've never recognized how profoundly you need a Savior. And all of your self-salvation projects have not worked. If today you'd like to say, okay, I want to say yes to God's offer in Jesus, then I want you to do that in a moment when we pray. There are going to be some people up here after the service that would love to pray for you. So if you've got some mess this morning that you'd like to pray about or you'd like to do some business with God, maybe for the first time, right over here behind that speaker over there, we'll create some space over there. We won't go over there and, and disturb. And if you'd like prayer, I'd like for you to go over here today and get someone to pray for you. Don't leave today without saying, you know what, I think I need some help. If you need help, let's pray. God, honestly, I don't, I don't know if we've heard you. I don't know if I've heard you. I don't know if we've recognized how badly we need you. Lord, we can so easily read Abraham's story and marvel at his goofiness and his mess. And we just so, we're so effective at hiding our own from ourselves, much less from others. But we can't hide from you. This morning, Lord, I ask in the name of Jesus that your loving, gentle, good, piercing, and penetrating eyes would rest on us. Call us to pay attention. Call us in. God, help us to see our mess before you. Our Oh, Lord, the things that we do in the dark, the things that we think, the choices that we're making, the aggressive plan B choices that we're making right now. Lord, uh, in our singleness, we are choosing to numb the hurt or the what if, the choices that we're making outside of our marriage without regard for the sanctity of our marriage or without regard for you. 
Father, the habits that we have developed to cover and to numb. Savior, we bring those to you this morning. We ask that you would help us and heal us and make us whole. We come like Abraham, a mess and creating mess, but recognizing that you still use us. You're still redeeming. You're still working. And we're so thankful. Lord, I pray today for all of us for a new measure of freedom, a new measure of strength. And I thank you so much for Jesus who showed us exactly who you are and what you're like and then took the penalty of all of our plan B decisions, paid that penalty, and then offered us his life. We thank you for the picture of that this morning in Laney. We ask you, Lord, to speak because we're listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.